So, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts may be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So how many of you know the game peekaboo? Some of you, uh, the sounds at the beginning of the service would tell us, are still in the midst of being able to enjoy uh, this early game in a child's life. Uh, For those of you who aren't, you you know what I'm talking about. Uh, But still, I need to demonstrate it, I think. (laughs) Uh, I loved playing this game with my kids when they were little. You know, you hide your face as a dad or a mom or uncle or friend. And uh, you, you, you put them behind there and you say, you know, where is daddy? And the little kid in excitement, you jump out and you say peekaboo and the kid gets all excited and you get behind your face again, your hands again, and you, you act like you're really not there. And sometimes Tucker or Emery, they would try to grab my hands to move them in their excitement. What a simple little game, but this is actually a really formative big deal in the life of a formation of a little human being. Childhood psychologists tell us that what's happening is a little thing called object permanence. And up until a certain age or a certain stage of development, that child literally believes dad's not there. It's closely linked to the idea of separation anxiety. And so as the child begins to grow, and establishes object permanence, the actual definition would be to say that even when I can't see it or hear it, dad still exists. Or the toy still is there and exists. It's closely linked to the idea of separation anxiety. And so as children get a little bit older, you may say something like, I'm going to go to the other room and get a cup of coffee, but I'll be back. And some little kiddos don't like mom or dad or friend or loved ones leaving the room because where did they go? Are they still there? There's there's some anxiety present. As they get even older and you might try to drop them off at school, you might go through a whole routine. This lesson of object permanence or this reality of separation anxiety is similar to what the first followers of Jesus had to come to understand about our risen Lord. And so if you'll turn to Luke 24, the passage you heard just read and proclaimed, we arrive on Easter morning and there is some level of separation anxiety, maybe pushing it a little far, some doubt of object permanence. And I hope that the angel's words to these three women at the empty tomb raise our understanding of the permanence of the presence of the risen Lord, not only in their lives, but in ours. Let me say that another way. I hope that as we look at this passage, these these 12 verses, that our understanding is raised of the lived experience of the risen Lord, even though we sometimes struggle to believe he's still there to believe that he still can be heard. If I had a thesis, it would be this. Ours is not a religion surrounding a dead guy that had great teaching and humility. Ours is a relationship with a risen Lord. There's a Q&A that goes on here at the empty tomb in Luke 24. Two questions are asked by these angelic beings to these three women I was looking at a number of different images that the church has 
uh, depicted of this scene. And I came across this one. I, I thought it was helpful because I know it's kind of small, but you can sort of see the darkness of their attire compared to the light of the empty tomb. And they come to this empty tomb, and the angels act like it's sort of normal for human beings to see angels and uh, are surprised that they're not surprised, I guess, and are surprised by their fear. And they say, hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? That's the first question that they ask. They're looking for a dead Jesus. They come in funeral attire. What Luke tells us is that they're bearing spices to tend to a dead body. And the angels ask, why do you look for the living among the dead? Did you know this this little question, it's very tenderly given. It's very graciously given, I believe, but it's it's still a bit of a rebuke. It's It's like a really good counseling question or spiritual direction question. It's a question that's that's meant to bring healing. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? I want to phrase the question a little bit differently, but along the exact same lines. Here's the question. Is the bodily resurrection of Jesus just a great myth? Let's let's consider this on Easter morning for a few minutes. Where these women are headed at the beginning of this story is to a corpse in a tomb. They have spices. They loved Jesus. He was their great teacher. They believed he was the Lord, the Messiah, but he must not have been because now he's dead. They're treating Jesus like people would treat any other religious leader who has now died. A great teacher, a great example to follow, but now he's dead. And so how do you connect to a religious leader who's now dead? Well, you read their writings. You have sort of a sentimental way of connecting. Maybe you go to the tomb where that that religious leader is buried. That's how they're relating to Jesus in this moment. And for us today, I just want you to know that you and I can make the same mistake. We're we're not that different than they are. Some of you here, and, and actually I think we'd be surprised by how many of us would say, you know, I find the teaching of Jesus to be admirable. I find the lifestyle of Jesus, his, his humility, his sacrifice to be something that's worth emulating. But a bodily resurrection, come on. I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, I'm, I'm an enlightened person. We're enlightened people. We know how bodies die. We know that once D-E-A-D, dead, they don't come back to life. I mean, if you just were to ask the average person, what's one of the barriers to you believing in the resurrection? I've never seen one. Would probably be at the top of the list. And and oftentimes what we do when we come to the scripture is you and I, we have a bit of, of cultural arrogance, maybe even chronological arrogance. And we say, well, this was a people, they were sort of prone to superstitions. They were prone to, um, really, they weren't educated like, like we are, like, like us modern people. They weren't quite as smart as we are, so, so we'll sort of let it slide. But we know he was just a great teacher that's worth following. Uh, it's just, it, it's a great myth. Now, if you're in North Texas, if you grew up in the South, you don't say these things aloud in most settings. But in, in your inner life, you may actually be like these women on this Easter morning, practically living as if you have a dead Jesus. 
a dead Lord. I want you to slow your roll if you are thinking that this was just something they were prone to believe because they were uneducated and superstitious people. I want you to know, and Luke wants you to know, if you have struggles believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, Luke, the gospel writer, is after you because he wants you to see that they were no more prone to believe in a resurrection than you and I are. And for different reasons, if you were a Jewish person, you were, your worldview was not such that you were just naturally prone to believe in the personal bodily resurrection immediately after death. This was not part of their worldview. And not only was it not part of the Jewish worldview, it wasn't part of the Greek worldview. The Greeks saw the body as bad. The soul is good. And so the idea of a bodily resurrection becomes the reason that many hearers of the early apostles think Paul in Greek cities, the moment he begins talking about a bodily resurrection of Jesus, they go, oh my gosh, seriously? That's where this is headed? The Greeks, the Jews were not prone to believe. It was not part of their worldview. But what we know is as this story progressed, these early followers of Jesus, and it ends up including non-Jewish followers, Greek Gentile followers of Jesus, not only did they come to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, they gave their very lives for him. They were willing to be martyred for him. It wasn't part of their worldview, but they gave their whole lives for it. They weren't just uneducated, superstitious folk. And Luke also is after you if you struggle to believe it because he points out specific names of real people in historical time and space. Joanna, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James. Did you know this was written somewhere inside of 40 to 50 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus? And Luke is wanting every one of his readers to know these are eyewitness accounts of people that if you can't, some of them who are still alive as this letter, the gospel of Luke is being circulated, go talk to the people who encountered him. These are real people. Not only was it not their worldview, there's eyewitnesses. And then third and finally, if you were trying to create a credible story in the first century, you would not have chosen women to be the first heralds. You wouldn't. Look at what the apostles, the, 12, the 11 disciples do to these women. Idle talk. Utter dismissal of these eyewitnesses. And yet the church was honest enough, well, I guess we should say God in his providence was good enough to help us to see how much the early followers of Jesus, the disciples themselves, struggled to believe the truth of the bodily resurrection. And so the angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Luke is after us to see that these early followers of Christ put their trust and hope and faith in them in, in, in this reality, and they gave their very lives for him. So is the bodily resurrection of Jesus just a great myth? There's all other ways of looking at the historicity of this that we're not going to cover this particular morning. The answer that we give as followers of Christ for these reasons and more is no, the resurrection of Jesus, it is miraculous, and it's a miracle you can believe in. They ask a second question, though, and this second question or comment is really connected to the first. So the first question is, why are you looking for the living among the dead? But the second question or comment that they make is, did you not know that the Son of Man must suffer and die 
This is what they, don't you remember what he said? They, they, they try to draw the women's attention back to what Jesus himself had taught. The angels are saying that the reason that you're not understanding this moment is you're not understanding what he said about his death. So understanding Christ's death actually opens the door to a right understanding of his bodily resurrection. There's this little detail, one little word, M-U-S-T, must. They say to these women, did you not remember what he said, that the Son of Man must die and on the third day rise again? So here's my second question. And I think this gets uh, at the core of a deep problem in North Texas Christian life. Here's the, here's the way I want to phrase this question. Is Jesus just a good example to follow? This little word, must, suggests that the answer to that question is, no, he's not just an example. See, they didn't understand that he must die, he must suffer, then he would be raised. And these original visitors are not different than you and I completely. They knew that Jesus had died. They knew that, but they didn't understand that he had to die. What does this mean? Well, what I have come across in our, maybe North American, you could say, but certainly North Texas kind of Christian subculture is that we are basically grave tenders, just like these early visitors. We think Jesus is a great example to follow, great humility, great integrity, a great way to live, and we dumb down what it means to follow him into what one might call just moralism, just being good enough, trying hard to do the right thing. We raise our children to do the right thing, make good choices, try hard to be good, and we end up dumbing down the gospel of the risen Lord to the idea that he's just an example to follow. Jesus didn't die to just simply be an example. He died, why? Because you and I are so bent in on ourselves. Uh, the early church writers and fathers used the term curvatas, and I love this image because it's the idea of somebody who's so bent in, their spines literally curved in on themselves that all they can be is selfish. The, the only good that comes from it are things that, that we're doing for our own well-being. We can't imagine that we have a deeper purpose and a deeper meaning, meaning. We don't know how to serve others. Jesus didn't die to give us a good example. He died actually to heal us from our sin and brokenness. And you and I can't help him out in that, that category. I grew up in a, a, an age and in a time and place where I know we didn't mean to do it, but practically we ended up basically turning Christianity into moralism and turning Jesus into a bit of a dead Jesus that's just a really good example to follow. Let me ask you, what about us? What about this local church, Church of the Resurrection? Are, are we grave tenders most week, weeks, seeking to be a little better, seeking to learn from a good example, or are you and I alive and running in the joy of the resurrection? It's really different, these two different ways of living. Do you know that he had to die? and then that he was risen from the dead. I like to use this language. I feel like it connects with our time and place. If you know this, if you've come to know this, then you know you have nothing to prove to yourself or to anyone else. 
If, if you understand that Jesus isn't just a good example to follow, but Jesus is the risen Lord who has paid for everything with his ultimate sacrifice of his very own life, then you have nothing to prove. You're no longer striving. Are you, are you still striving? Then you have a dead Jesus. The other way of saying is you not only have nothing to prove, you know that if you believe that you have a risen Lord who paid it all, then you have nothing not only to prove, but you have nothing to hide. You got nothing to hide. This means that the areas of my life and your life where things are messy, we don't have to be defensive about them. We don't have to deny them, ignore them, hide from them. Uh, We live in a culture in North Texas where things look really good on the front, front lawn, surface of our lives, lots of veneer, lots of paint, But the gospel invites people who have a risen Lord who knew that Jesus must die because we were so bent in on ourselves that when we see the brokenness and sinful of our very own lives, we don't go, ah, cover it up. We got nothing to hide. We we were all, we are all a total mess apart from Christ bringing in the healing of his resurrection life. We got nothing to prove. We got nothing to hide. We know that he's not just a good, is he a good, he's a good example to follow. Know that he is, of course. But he's not only that. He's our savior and he's our risen Lord. So we can freely admit when we make mistakes, we can freely admit our own messiness. But it's not just about moralism. Christ had to die. Second question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And did you not know that Jesus must suffer, that this is the only way for the world and your very own life to be set right, is that he must suffer. And if you understand that he must suffer, now you can begin to break into this reality that he is risen. These three women come to the grave with their spices to the tomb of Jesus. This little image. They come grave tending. It says in verse 8, Then, after uh, an angelic rebuke, it took that much. It took the intervention of heaven, breaking through their disbelief to prevent them from grave tending a dead Jesus. Then, look at what it says in verse 8, then they remembered his words. Oh, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And the lights go on. And what happens when the light of the resurrection begins to shine in your life? I'm almost done. You know what happens? When the light of the resurrection begins to shine into your very own life, you stop looking like a grave tender and you begin to run with joy into the spaces and places that God has called you to be an ambassador for him in. Look at this image. Here's a different image. Now there's a lot of different takes on this. I'm not a huge fan of all of them, but but here comes Mary Magdalene who one of the early church fathers, Augustine, actually said, she is the apostolos apostorum. Sounds like a Harry Potter spell. (laughs) What Augustine's celebrating is she turns from being the grave tender with spices to being the apostle to the apostles. What's an apostle? One who is sent. When the light of the resurrection begins to shine deeply into your life and you realize that he, he, he must die, and he did. And because he did, 
I can now be alive, not because I'm good enough or that I try hard enough because he did it all. Now, now we become heralds. It sets you free to no longer be bit in on yourself, but to become sent ones. Church of the Resurrection, what we're going to do over the next seven weeks is we are going to see week after week these resurrection scenes sometimes in the Gospel of John, are paired with a church in the book of Acts that is on mission, that goes from grave tending. Let me ask, where are the disciples when this scene happens at the empty tomb? They are sheltering in place. We now know what that means. They're sheltering in place. They're huddled. They've not crossed the threshold of their door. They're totally locked in. And if I drew a parallel, I would say so long as the church is centered around some sentimental religion of moralism, all we will ever do is hunker down. All we will ever do is gather, 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 and grave tend. But when the resurrection power of Christ lights up your world, you still gather together. We do. We gather like this. We do. But we don't stay gathered. We are sent out into the world to be on mission. It changes us personally, and then it turns on the green light of the Great Commission. And so here's my last and final question. Do you have a real relationship with the risen Lord? Do you have a real relationship with the risen Lord? This Easter season... One might say Jesus seems to be playing peekaboo. He shows up, shows himself bodily resurrected, and then he goes away. And then he shows up. He's not playing games. What he's doing is he's establishing establishing object permanence. Even though we can't see him in the physical way and hear him in the physical way with our ears, he is alive. He is risen. And he's trying to wake up his church to this reality that even though he's not physically present with us, he now sends his church on mission in the world, not with a religion that has a dead rabbi that we simply remember and cherish, but with a personal relationship with a risen Lord. Peter calls it a living hope, a real person who's really risen that we know and walk with. So I want to invite you, join us every Sunday of Eastertide as we lead up to Pentecost Sunday. What we've seen since Advent is God comes to us in Christ. God speaks to us in the person of Christ. God saves us throughout this Lenten season. God saves us from our sin because Christ must suffer. Now he sends us. Easter will Turn on the green light of the Great Commission for you and I to know how to go and be his ambassadors, his his apostles in this world, sent ones. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the tactics of the enemy are sometimes so powerful that we fall for a really shallow, moralistic religion. We pray this Easter Sunday that you would wake us up to your resurrection. You have died for us, Lord. You have been risen for us. Therefore, we can walk in newness of life. Lord, show us how to walk and to live into this grace. 
into the beauty of this gospel story. And Lord, equip us in this Easter season and beyond to be your ambassadors in the world. We ask this for your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.